The Brittany Griner trial in Russia has developed this cadence. The American basketball star walks in, heavily guarded. She's often led by an officer with a fierce-looking dog. And then she's put in a cage right behind her lawyers. Sometimes as things get started, she'll hold up pictures of her wife, of her WNBA teammates. It seems like she's saying, I've got people out there. Don't forget about me. Greiner has already pleaded guilty to drug charges. She got caught carrying vape cartridges filled with cannabis oil. And that's part of what makes this spectacle so strange. This trial, it's going forward even though the Russian government has already won. So I think what the Russians are looking for is a political win on the propaganda side. Former journalist Doug Farah has been following Greiner's trial from afar. The pictures are very impactful, and I think she looks like a prisoner. And for someone, you know, in the cage certainly conveys that she's, you know, has no way out. But what if Brittany Griner did have a way out? Overseas now, where WNBA star Brittany Griner was in court today testifying about her drug charges, that the State Department has made an offer to Moscow to bring her home. And in the last few weeks, American diplomats have all but confirmed that they've offered Russia a deal, a prisoner swap. Who might be exchanged for whom remains a little unclear. In addition to Brittany Griner, the U.S. is said to want another American freed, Paul Whelan. But one name keeps coming up again and again. Russia has long sought the release of Victor Boot. Victor Boot is a notorious Russian arms dealer. He's serving a 25-year prison sentence for conspiring to kill Americans and to provide material support to terrorists. Do you have a favorite nickname for Victor Boot? No. <laughs> you know, he, he was dubbed the Merchant of Death by a British parliamentarian, and that stuck, I think, it's, I think it's accurate. Part of the reason Doug Fair has been so interested in the Brittany Griner case is that he's a Victor Boot expert. He literally wrote the book on him. It's called Merchant of Death. I think he preferred to call himself a taxi driver, that he was simply ferrying goods. and taxi driver? Well, his argument was that a taxi driver doesn't know what his passenger is carrying, and therefore he didn't have any responsibility to know what was in the planes he was moving, that he was simply ferrying products from point A to point B, and therefore... Like, whoops, I have some AK-47s in this cab? Well, it's not his responsibility to know, right? That's that's what his brother Sergey argued in in his defense. So I, I prefer to think of him <laughs> more more in those lines, which I think is, is absurd, but probably how he actually views himself. Doug Farah has called Victor Boot evil, and he's seen the cruelty of what Boot's done firsthand. But watching Brittany Griner's trial, he's found himself in the funny position of advocating for Boot's release asking Americans to consider what action here is going to do the least harm. I wonder if you look at the idea of trading Victor Boot for Brittany Griner and you think it's a fair trade. Well, I think it's fair now because Victor Boot is no longer, I think, relevant in the international arms trade as he once was. I think five years ago, I would have felt very differently because I would have felt that Victor Boot had not paid his time. There were still options for him to have perhaps plug back into his former network. I think all of that is gone now. And so I think it's it may not be 
fair, but I think it would be a merciful thing that would not cause further damage. Today on the show, we're not going to tell the story of Brittany Griner's potential release. Instead, we're going to tell the story of Victor Boot and talk about why someone who chronicled Boot's atrocities thinks this may be the moment to send him home. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. I asked Doug Farah to start out by giving me Victor Boot's origin story. For Doug, it goes back to the early 2000s. Back then, he was a war correspondent for The Washington Post. He was covering conflicts in West Africa. And he started to notice something. The groups in the Democratic Republic of Congo and elsewhere suddenly went from having hunting rifles and machetes to having AK-47s, light anti-tank weapons, rocket-propelled grenades. And were you basically like, where did those come from? Exactly. We're like, what happened? Why are we suddenly seeing this enormous transformation in the amount of damage that can be done by these people? Weapons were coming in by plane. That Doug and his colleagues were able to figure out. Then the U.N., started looking into who was sending these planes. And that's how Victor Boot emerged as a suspect. We started hearing the name Victor a lot. Most people didn't know his last name. And that whole context of what was happening in these really bloody wars, it took the really strong reporting of some of the UN investigators on the ground. It took incredible luck because they found some folks in the really remote landing strips that had actually kept records of the airplanes that had landed for some reason. And so we sort of all put the pieces together in different ways and came to the conclusion it was Victor Boot in his aircraft. And was he literally landing the planes? In some cases, yes. He often flew also in helicopters around to supervise where weapons were being delivered or, or go with his trusted cadre of inner circle people to fly around and see things or meet with the president and say, this is what we want to do and collect the money. So he was a hands-on guy. He wasn't just sitting back in an office somewhere telling other people what to do. No, and what people say repeatedly about him is that he really liked being hands-on, that that's the part that, that he, he really liked. Before running his taxi service for weapons of war, Victor Boot had been a Russian spy. For him, the end of the Cold War had been a business opportunity. He snatched up military supplies from satellite countries and gave them new life all over the world. He grabbed aircraft out of the former Soviet Union. He started grabbing their weapons. And he realized there was this enormous market for them in different parts of the world. And I think he, he was clearly an incredibly smart, uh, visionary person. I think he just used his vision for something that brought enormous destruction and death rather than something that could have been more positive. How big did his operation get? Like at its fullest force, how many weapons were being exchanged, how many aircraft were flying around? Well, he had more than 50 aircraft at his peak. And what he discovered, I think, was in a continent the size of Africa with so little infrastructure that any time you flew an airplane, you could make money. You never had to fly empty. So you could fly in weapons and then you could fly out timber. You could fly out almost anything else that could move. He was taking gladiolas and chicken from South Africa to the United Arab Emirates for a while in, in the mix of everything else he was doing. He was flying UN peacekeepers because there was no other way to get them into the areas where they were needing to go. So it was, it was just this vast assortment of aircraft that would fly anywhere under any conditions with anything in their hold. Huh. So 
<laughs> he just kind of had the stones to do it, basically, where other people didn't. He had the stones and the vision. I think it t- it takes a certain level of you know genius almost to say, okay, we have weapons here, we have peacekeepers here, we have diamonds here. How can I bring it all together and make money? And he was very young. I mean, he was in his early 30s when he started all of this. And it's, it, was, it was quite amazing. It's funny because you've already said how Boot was also ferrying people from the UN. I think I read that he was also working in Iraq for the US. So he was deeply enmeshed, it seems like, with all kinds of countries and conflicts. The really interesting thing over time was finding that he was supplying multiple sides of the same conflict. In Angola, he was supplying the UNITA rebels while he was supplying the government with weapons. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, he was supplying Mobutu, who was the dictator who was fleeing, and Jonas and uh, the rebel forces who were coming across the Congo to defeat him. And then in Afghanistan, he dealt with the Northern Alliance and then began supplying the Taliban. And then in Iraq, he began flying for the U.S. and the British in significant ways. So he, he was really, you know, an opportunist of the, of the first degree. So how did these people he was doing business with, like the U.S., come to see him as a target? Well, there were two tracks going on sort of for a number of years. One was the European and U.S. Uh, investigations into the weapons trafficking and, and uh and the diamond, illicit diamond trade that was driving so many of the conflicts in, in Africa. And one of them was the imperative, if you'll recall, when we were going into uh, Iraq and, and Afghanistan, we had very few logistical pillars we could rely on there. And so when someone showed up with aircraft and said, you know, I'll, I can fly and I'll do this for you guys, a lot of the Americans uh, knew uh, it would take them time. They understood over time who they were dealing with. They viewed his ability to deliver ammunition and other material to the troops on the ground in combat zones as more important than trying to shut him out of the trade because of other things he had done. So it became this really uh, tricky balance between dealing with a criminal who is helping them in a very specific time with great need and really going after a criminal. Did it surprise you when he was arrested? It surprised me so much that our book was literally... Our uh, our book, Merchant of Death, I wrote with Steve Braun about Victor Boot was being printed <laughs> the day when he was arrested. And we called the publisher and said, please give us, you know, a couple days to write the epilogue. This. And they said, literally, your book is being printed. We never thought he would be caught. And my book literally ends saying, essentially, he'll probably never be caught. So, yes, I was surprised. When we come back, why Victor Boot may be released back to Russia 14 years after his arrest. You've chronicled all of the awful things that Victor Boot did, but also clearly how he was connected to lots of other people in power. I don't know, you said five years ago you wouldn't have thought he would be someone you should exchange with Russia. You should let go, essentially. Why did that change? Was it just time? I think it's mostly, yes, for me it's time. I think he he needed to serve a substantial sentence, in my mind, without a doubt. I don't think 
if he had been in two years or three years and coming out, I think it would have been, you know, for me, much more problematic. So it's been a little over 10 years. And I think looking back as I've, I continue to work in the world of organized crime, weapons trafficking, et cetera, I think to me it's clear that those networks that he had built up were entirely based on trust in his ability to have access to specific things in the former Soviet Union that he no longer has access to. He doesn't have access to abandoned aircraft. He doesn't have access to armories that were abandoned that he could just sort of collect and move out and sell. And he doesn't have any of the contacts left in that world that would make him a threat to the United States or to or to anyone else. So I think in that sense, he's, like I said, a spent force. But I do think he, it's very important that he, he also do time for what he did. I mean, I came across him in refugee camps dealing with children who'd had their arms chopped off by the forces he had empowered. You know, they had their legs chopped off. They had entire villages burned to the ground. I mean, there's nothing redeeming about what happened in any of the conflicts he was involved in. But I'm not sure that another few years in a U.S. prison would be particularly uh, useful to him. You've said that Victor Boot is a spent force, that if he got out, he wouldn't have some of the resources he had before he went in, like access to weapons and aircraft, the trust of the people he did business with. But... Is he really? I mean, I can't see this guy going back to just a normal everyday life. Wouldn't he just get out and cause chaos? Isn't that a possibility? I think it's a possibility, but I can't, in my mind, imagine where he would go where he could do that. He's now permanently branded as the merchant of death. He will be under the strict surveillance of the Russian intelligence services. They'll have him on a short leash. Can he help the Russian state figure out how to do certain things logistically? Perhaps. Can he go out himself and create a network again and start moving stuff? I don't think that's possible. In that case, why is he valuable to the Russians? Like, why would they want him back? Well, I think that's a really important question and one that I don't understand Russia well enough to feel fully confident in answering. But I think there is certainly an element in the Russian intelligence structures that feel that they lost one of their own and they want to bring one back. And also, I think that there is enormous propaganda value unrelated to whether he comes back or not in saying, here we have this Russian, innocent Russian citizen being held in terrible conditions in a U.S. prison and all of these things that they can use in their own propaganda machines to make the U.S. look, in their mind, as bad as Russia looks to the outside world and people like like Reiner. So I think that in that sense, he's an enormous propaganda boon for them. And I'm not sure, it's not clear to me in watching how this is going, that they have any interest in actually recovering Victor Boot in this trade. I think that that's the big question. They've, they have not taken the deal that was put on the table. So maybe they don't want him. Or... Not enough. I think that's right. Hmm. When you wrote an op-ed advocating for exchanging Victor Boot for Brittany Griner, it sounds like you got an earful from your contacts in the DEA. What were they saying to you? Both the DEA and State Department colleagues, folks that I had known for many years, were very upset because they felt it was a betrayal of the rule of law. Their point is something that I think a lot of people, and I think it's a strong counter-argument, does, does this empower uh, Russia or others then to grab more Americans for future bargaining chips? I don't think that in this particular case that that is true. And I do think Brittany Griner is a 
unusual case in that she had nothing else going on for being in Russia other than to play basketball for a Russian team that had invited her there, signed a contract with her, and was carrying derivatives of marijuana that she had been prescribed. So there's nothing nefarious or possibly nefarious about her presence in Russia, whereas many other people can say, well, what were they really doing? Did they have intelligence contacts? They felt that it just was a really bad idea to even consider exchanging boot for anyone ever. Hmm. Seems like a little pride going on here, too. Well, I think, you know, and the, the DEA people pointed out, and I think it's also true, that they had people involved in the operation of getting Victor Boot who operated at tremendous personal risk. And I, I think that that's true and that's also fair. But I also think at a certain point in time, and I don't think you can say on this specific moment, but at a certain point in time, continued presence in a U.S. prison when you have someone else suffering that, whose suffering could be alleviated and you are not achieving anything further by keeping that person incarcerated, maybe it's time to think again. Yeah. I mean, you've also said you worry for Brittany Griner because she's gay. Russia is an extremely anti-gay leadership, at least. And we, we've seen the persecution of the, the gay and LGBTQ communities in Russia. So I think that of the many people that Russia is holding illegally, someone like Britney is probably in more grave danger of not being let out under any circumstances because of the anti-gay sentiment that permeates, we know, the upper echelons, at least, of Russian society and the court system that Putin clearly controls. So I think that that is a valid concern for her safety and her well-being. Do you worry that the U.S. tipped its hand too much, like was a little too thirsty to exchange Victor Boot. And that's part of why Russia seems less excited right now about the possibility. I do. And I told a friend of mine at the State Department, even as a former journalist, having been at the Washington Post for 20 years, I'm kind of appalled at how public this became and how this has become now almost political theater, as opposed to being a quiet, serious negotiation that could have resulted in something perhaps much more quickly and with much more utility. I think now both sides are in a mode where they have to portray strength and they have to portray pride and they have to portray all of these things that done quietly out of the public view, initially at least, that would have been much easier to do. Doug Farah, I'm really grateful for your time. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. I appreciate it. And uh, thank you for the opportunity. Douglas Farah is the co-author of Merchant of Death, Money, Guns, Planes, and The Man Who Makes War Possible. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Carmel Del Shad, Madeline Ducharme, and Mary Wilson. We're getting help from Jared Downing and Anna Rubinova. And we are led by Alicia Montgomery and Joanne Levine. And I'm Mary Harris. Go track me down on Twitter. I'm at Mary's desk. All right. Thanks for listening. Catch you back here tomorrow.